Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, as election rumors continue, the latest Ipsos poll says support for the conservatives is actually dipping. The liberals are in good shape, though, to get a majority, but they would need 12 more seats to do that. Where would those seats come from? Now we'll talk about that. International tourism was one of the hardest-hit sectors for the COVID-19 pandemic, and according to a UN report, it's not expected to rebound fully until at least 2023. We'll talk about the implications to that. And many Canadians were not aware of what really happened at residential schools. We have to get more information. That's the conclusion of one of the many studies that have been done. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. MPs, of course, are technically away from the work right now. They're in their quote-unquote summer break. Uh, but the polling continues, and the, the rumors about a possible federal election continue. Well, it seems now that support for the governing Liberals has stabilized. In the latest Ipsos poll that was done for Global News, uh, well, the numbers are looking pretty good for the Liberals. Global's Jeff Smith has the details. The poll conducted in the middle of this month for Global News finds 38% of decided voters choosing the Liberal Party. That's the same as in May, but two points lower than April. Aaron O'Toole's Conservative Party is at 26%, a drop of three points from May. Jagmeet Singh's New Democrats lost a point to 20%. The Bloc Québécois and Green Party showed gains. The Liberals lead with support of 46% in the Atlantic region, 40 in Ontario and Quebec, 36 in B.C. The Tories are in front with 43% support in Saskatchewan and Manitoba, 38% in April. More than half say they approve of the job the Trudeau Liberals are doing, 52%, and that's an increase of two. Jeff Smith, Global News. So, with the uh, rumors about election going on, do these numbers help or hurt the uh, the situation as to when we're going to go to the polls? I want to bring our good friend Richard Brennan into the conversation, uh, former journalist with the Toronto Star who covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill for many years. Uh, Badger, welcome back. Hope you had a great Canada Day yesterday. I did, Bill. Yourself? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, lots of stuff to celebrate and lots of stuff to be concerned about, and uh, we'll get to that a little bit later on. What about these numbers? What, what do you make of this? Well, I, that's just about what the uh, Liberals are hoping for, that's for sure. Uh, but again, you know, you, you've got uh, weak opposition, so it puts them in a very good spot, I, I think, to uh, to get a majority. And I don't think it's going to be a big one either. I, I think they're going to squeak out a majority. I don't think it's going to be whopping by any stretch of the imagination. But, you know, it's with, with, the, with the NDP and, and the, and the uh, Conservatives, trailing like they are they're in they're in a good spot but god building as you well know a lot can happen between then and you know now and uh, the next election well and there's this a numbers game that's going on here and you know just and this is i guess just a a, a child of the you know the parliamentary system that we're living under uh you could have 38 39 percent but it's really where that vote is i mean if it's in ontario is there a possibility of them getting more seats here maybe uh, not so much across the, the Prairie provinces right now. I mean, the worst-case scenario for the Liberals is, even if these numbers hold true, is that it, all that's going to do is, is give them wider margins of victory in some of the seats they already hold. I mean, they need at least 12 seats here, probably 13, uh, to give them some sort of a comfort level. Where are they going to find those seats? Well, they'll probably find some in Ontario. Uh, certainly they'll find some, maybe a few more down uh, east. And uh, hopefully, you know, hopefully for them, I should say, is uh, in Quebec. But uh, I don't think they're going to be getting any seats uh, out west. Uh, maybe in Edmonton, but that, that's about it. And, and of course, in BC, and maybe they'll, they'll land some uh, some more out there. But you know, it, this it sounds like you all just twelve seats. But boy, you know, when it's tight like this, 
you really start got it. You really have to wonder and start counting the numbers and saying, "Well, where where are we going to get those seats?" And I'm sure that they've done that, but uh, who knows? I, I, but Ontario is their strength, obviously. Well, and, and, and the, the greater GTHA area that, yeah, that, oh, that is voter rich. What are the forty-four seats? I think in the Toronto area alone. Yeah, and, uh, like and they tend to do pretty well there. And uh, then you know that that bleeds into Mississauga. Uh, I'm sure they'd like to extend it down to four hundred a little bit. But uh, you know, I'm, they're, they're they're crunching the numbers. I'm sure as we're speaking uh, to find out just where this is going to go. But uh, the big question here, though, uh, when they get these numbers and and this rather relatively large lead that uh, the prime minister himself has as as you know, the choice to be the leader of the country, plus the party. Uh, are they tempted to push the button right now and say, let's go? No, I don't. Th- I, they're not. There's no way. They may have a, uh, uh, the election campaign start in the latter part of August for an election in September, but there's no way they're going to uh, do something in the middle of summer. That would be just, that would be political suicide, I, I think, because... You know, people don't want any politicians in their face when they're, you know, when they're trying to enjoy their summer. Well, especially this year, because it may be the first time in a while that we've been able to enjoy the summer. As, if the numbers keep going the way they are right now, I think the last thing you want to have is, is to, to have to watch and pay attention to one of these, uh, you know, well, it's, whether it's going to be a leader's debate or anything else. And, and they're always short campaigns now, more often than not anyway. So you're probably talking about a 31-day campaign. So well, if you want to back time that, that would pretty much make it uh, maybe the second or third week of August. Well, you're right there. It's, they're shorter campaigns because they, they want to lessen the damage. Yeah. They, they don't want anything to happen. You know, the fewer things that happen during that, in that short campaign works, works for, in the favor of the government. The longer you stretch it out, the more the reporters have time to dig stuff up and, and remind people what's happened in the past and et cetera. And so they, they're, they're, you know, smart in, in the effect that they want to just have a short campaign have people have people take a look at them pretty quickly and 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 decide but just to go back to the summertime you know they don't uh, they don't want a summer campaign either for another reason because people aren't paying attention mm-hmm. and and they want they do want people to pay attention they want they want folks to say you know i'm better than this person and this is why and 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 reverse so that's another reason you won't see it till you know late summer, early fall. Well, let's talk about what might be happening. As you mentioned, you know, a week is a lifetime in politics, and we're talking about at least going through seven or eight weeks of summer before these guys probably decide that they're going to pull the plug on this. Uh, if, if the vaccination rate continues to go uh, as it's going right now, I think people are going to be relatively happy. Uh, the uh, the you know, financial assistance programs, I guess, are still in place, although there's a sunset clause, but that could change. I mean, he could announce that tomorrow if he wanted to, just say, yeah, we're extending them to the end of the year or whatever he wants to do, uh, which is, is going to be good. But what else? is? It, can the floor fall out from under them in a situation like this? Because, like I said, there's not a whole lot going on politically in the summertime. No, I, you know, it's uh, what somebody described it as, uh, you know, um, to me just recently is, you know, th- this is an opportunity for, for them to uh, campaign on our dollar <laughs> and uh, and show people that, you know, hey, I'm not such a bad guy after all, or, I'm, you know, I, 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 I've done a good job so far in, in his mind and Trudeau's mind, and, and, uh, and people will people will decide 
to you know compare the, the, the basically the three leaders and say, okay, who's going to who's going to take us into the next chapter, and that is to get this economy back on track in Canada, and that's what that's and that's one of the major things that you can bet the Liberals are going to be pushing that hard, that they're they're the party that will bring Canada out of this pandemic and into, you know, and, and flourish economically. So how does that work out? And what's that look like? I mean, Aaron O'Toole's let some of his campaign stuff out there. You know, he's talking about trying to balance the budget within a, eight or ten years or something. And that, that's probably going to get him a couple of favorable columns in the National Post or the Toronto Sun. But is it really what Canadians want right now? Or do they just want to know that they're going to have steady income and they're going to be able to be employed and, and get on with their lives? I never thought I'd say this, but I think people have gotten to the point right now that they're not worried about spending. <laughs> Let's face it, we all should be. But it's because of the pandemic, people have gotten used to running major deficits, and we're all going to pay for it at some point. But mm-hmm. at this point, they're saying, you know, let, let's, get, let's get things back on the road again. Let's get things going again before we even worry about it. And, that, and that's, where, that's where a lot of people are right now. They, they just want to know that they're going to be all right in their lives. And, and you know, when you start talking about, you know, balancing budget, well, that usually means cutbacks in some way, shape, or form, reducing spending, uh, any number of other things, reducing programs that the people might be leaning towards right now. Uh, austerity is not the word I think a lot of people want to hear right now. But that'd be political suicide for any party that takes that stand. That if you elect us, we're going to cut and we're going to do this and do that and get rid of programs and that, well, you might as well just throw in your towel because that's not going to work. This, you know, that Other times it will work. Uh, we, we've seen it in the past with, with the Liberals uh, early on in, in the 90s, and, uh, you know, that worked. They, they crunched and crunched and crunched, but there's no way a party is going to get uh, able to do that right now. Again, if they do that, it's just political suicide. So, what are the conservatives thinking right now? I mean, they made the move, got rid of Andrew Scheer. Fire's remorse. Yeah, and well, and so Aaron O'Toole <laughs> was supposed to be this guy that was going to be the leader, and he was going to, you know, get them to the promised land. He was the guy that was going to be able to challenge Justin Trudeau. Uh, the numbers are indicating they've got some problems there. Well, for many reasons, and it's just it's just not O'Toole himself. His party's in, you know, tearing itself apart. And, and that's not going to help him when he's trying to convince the country that he's a leader and he can run the show. I mean, if you can't, if you can't make your, get your party going and pulling in the same direction, then why are, why are people going to be convinced that you can do it, you know, on a, on a national scale? So he's got a caucus right now that is, is divided on a lot of issues. I don't think they did themselves any favors uh, by voting against the conversion therapy bill. And that's not going to play well, especially in some of the larger urban centers where they need to pick up some votes. But uh, they've got to make a decision, I guess, like every political party does, about just who they are, what their identity is. Well, and that's it. What is their identity? Is it, is it you know, middle of the road, like right, right of center? You know where they, I would suggest that they should be, uh, or is or are they going to is it going to give way to the you know the, the, uh, the social conservatives? No one knows, and that's the problem that uh, Mr. O'Toole has with trying to uh, tell Canadians that this party is a party you know of of you know 
you know, a, a party that wants to look after everybody and take everybody's uh, concerns to heart. The public just doesn't know. And that's, that is definitely the, the situation we're talking about now. They don't know what they're getting if they have voted, if they voted for uh, a conservative government. They've got to make inroads in, in the major cities, right across the country, but especially in Ontario and in Quebec and, and through the Maritimes. And well, getting, uh, getting Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and Alberta, yeah. it's not going to do it for you. No. So they've, they've got their work cut out for them. Speaking of uh, parties that are tearing themselves apart, we've got a couple of minutes left here. What's going to happen with the Green Party? Anime Paul apparently is uh, going to uh, be brought before the uh, the judge, jury, and executioner, I guess, in, a, in about two weeks. Uh, they, they basically gave her her marching orders and said, this is what we want you to do and you can stay on it. She's not doing it. So uh, does she uh, get the, the, the door shown to her? What's going to happen here? And, and with an election imminent, do, do they really have time for a leadership to pick a new leader? Uh, no, I, I, I feel I feel sorry for for her to some extent. I mean, and the party, uh, it just it's in disarray. It, why would any Why would any thinking voter look at them and consider them at this point? Because it's just a schmozzle. And you know why why they got in? You know why she got involved in the debate on the Middle East is beyond me. Uh, you know, it's, it's just something, you know, you, you you can have concerns about, you know, either or, but the point is, why would you, at, at a party that's trying to gain traction, even get, get involved in what's been a controversy, you know, that's dogged that area forever, why would you bring it home and, and you know, put it on the table and say that you're feeling one way or the other? I, it just—it was a colossal uh, political blunder, as far as I'm concerned. Well, it's and it's a polarizing debate anyway. Well, of course uh, it is. Either you take either side in that, and you're going to tick off about half the other population. And it was—and I'm not suggesting that it's not an issue. Of course, what's going on in the Middle East is an issue. It has been for God knows how many years now. But is that what's on people's minds right now? For a party that's actually trying to gain some traction, uh, is issuing a, a polarizing statement like that you, that you know is going to actually tear people apart the best what strategy? And, Bill, I hate, hate to say this, and I raise the specter of racism, but I just got to wonder how much of that is involved here. Maybe not at all, but, boy, I just I look at the situation and I see a, you know, a, a strong black woman who's you know, elected as a leader, and all of a sudden people are turning against her. I, I don't know. It just it's a lot, raises a lot of red flags for me. Well, it's not as if they didn't know what they were getting. I mean, she's been pretty consistent all the way through, and they, they elected her as leader, so exactly. you have to assume that that's, this is where she's going to be. Well, yeah, like, why are they surprised? Well, it's too bad, because I really thought that, the, you know, the uh, I thought Green Party had a, a chance to, you know, get some more seats this time, but I'll be very surprised that, guys, they may even lose the ones they've got. Well, uh, we'll see what happens uh, at the middle of this month when uh, they have their meeting and decide what they're going to do with the leadership. And in the meantime, we'll be watching to see if uh, Rick gets dropped. But I, I agree with you. I think we're probably looking at, uh, at early September, which means we've got a few more weeks to play with. Uh, Badger, as always, thanks for this. Uh, have a great weekend. We'll talk again next week. You too, Bill. Thanks a lot. Richard Brennan, of course, who covered uh, Parliament Hill and Queen's Park for so many years. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We had Tim Hudak on the program earlier this week. Uh, Tim was the uh, 
basically a volunteer that basically went around the province over the last couple of weeks talking to people in the tourism and hospitality industries uh, to make recommendations about how we get this industry back on its feet. And uh, there's some challenges there, to be sure. And, well, the numbers are not looking pretty good internationally, but even locally when we look at some of this stuff. It's going to be a pretty difficult summer for businesses that rely on tourism. Museums, aquariums, uh, indoor theaters, not going to be permitted to open until Ontario enters Stage 3. And uh, we're not sure when that exactly is going to happen. Sandy Salerno's got some details for us. Without international travel being allowed into Canada, leaders from Toronto's tourism sector warn their businesses are at risk of losing another summer to the pandemic. Christopher Bloor is the president of the Tourism Industry Association of Ontario. He says right now, fully vaccinated Americans are making decisions on when and where they'll be spending their dollars. We need them to know that the U.S.-Canada border will be open in time for them to spend their vacations here. John Karastamatis from Mervis Productions says in the summertime, at least 50% of audiences at its four theaters downtown are visitors from the U.S and it's likely they won't be able to reopen until international travel into Canada resumes. Our local audiences cannot support what we do and what others do alone. The government has not said yet whether it will extend the closure of the Canada-U.S. land border after it expires on July 21st. Sandy Salerno, Global News. So we can have lists and lists and lists of recommendations, but I mean, if people can't get in the doors to these facilities, what's going to happen? And the international numbers, by the way, are even more staggering. Joining us to talk about this is Dr. Marion Joppe, a professor at the School of Hospitality, Food and Tourism Management at the University of Guelph. Uh, doctor, thank you for the time. Great to have you with us today. Thank you for having me. We had a previous conversation a little while ago about uh, about the dilemma facing the tourism industry, and it's 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 frightening when you look at some of these international numbers. Uh, the, in the United Nations did a survey, I'm sure you saw, that says that international arrivals plunged by 73% uh, from pandemic levels in 2019. Uh, they figure the U.S. lost about $2.4 trillion in tourism and related sectors. Uh, now, those are big numbers because they're talking about the United States economy, but it's uh, it's it's rather daunting here in Ontario, too, isn't it? It is, absolutely. Uh, I mean, Canada has lost far more. So uh, the 73% uh, international includes many countries uh, where traffic sort of resumed fairly quickly or didn't shut down until much later. We lost uh, 90% of our our international travel, uh, and we're still only at about, mm, give or take, 30%. Where does that leave the industry? I, I, we, we've seen some of it because it's very visual. That, you know, they've been delayed people off at many of the airlines. Uh, I've talked to some hoteliers that are very concerned about the fact that they just aren't getting any bookings and don't anticipate too much anymore because there's not much happening this summer. Exactly. Um, I mean, certainly from an international perspective, we've lost the summer. Um, my guess is that we will not open the border completely on the 21st of uh, July. Uh, maybe, maybe if we're lucky, they'll uh, allow it for fully vaccinated uh, travelers to come in. Uh, but even that is, uh, you know, not a given. And so even by July 21st, we've lost half the summer. Well, and we don't know when we're going to get into phase three, and that's all tied together depending on what the numbers are. And I guess part of the frustration I'm hearing from a lot of the people in the industry at this point, Doctor, is that, well, the accusation is the government keeps moving the yardsticks. You know, we're, we're attaining the goals that they set up for us to move on to the next one, but they're not doing it. You know, they're, they're apprehensive, and I understand the concerns about the variant and, and, and all of that, but that's, uh, that's cold comfort to these businesses that really need tourists. Yeah, it, it absolutely, and, and it is the moving of goalposts that makes it so difficult for businesses to do any kind of planning. 
and you know it takes time to uh, to restart this industry and i mean they're finding even in the states where uh they they've had this huge domestic market which we don't have um and and so it's picked up and they're at at pre-pandemic levels domestically and the airlines are canceling flights left right and center because they don't have the staff, they need to retrain, recertify uh, pilots and, and airplanes. You can't pull them out of storage and, and just have them fly the next day. I mean, all of that takes time. And, and so we see down south how they're handling it. We will need to handle it the same way here. And, you know, how are businesses supposed to prepare if they don't know what's actually going to happen? If this, with so many different things about the pandemic, doctor, have really exposed problems that already existed, or just or exposed uh, dependencies that we kind of took for granted, and and maybe what this has shown us, I know the people in the industry certainly knew this, how much we depend on cross-border traffic for tourism in the summer months. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I mean, the U.S. is uh, our biggest international market by far, and. Uh, even the, the other countries, European countries, uh, China, uh, Australia, they are high-spending countries. They spend far, far more than Canadians do. And so um, when you look at the revenue as opposed to the number of visitors, it's even more devastating for the industry because it's the, the highest-spending people that we are losing uh, as clients in this country. Well, as one individual from Rivers Productions down in the Toronto area mentioned, they, they, they think the estimate they were giving is about almost 50% of the people in the summertime that go to the, attend the live shows in Toronto are from the United States, and not just from border, border cities like Buffalo and Niagara Falls. Uh, they travel some distance. I mean, this is, in many people's minds, the, you know, the Toronto Theatre District is like, it was just, that's Broadway North. Uh, you yes, know, you can't is. make it to New York City. You can't afford New York City. Let's go to Toronto, spend a weekend there. And, and that's lost, and you're right. I mean, even if they were to say, okay, uh, you guys can open on June 23rd now. Uh, how do you put a production together? How do you fill a theater? I mean, it's, yeah. yeah. You can't, right? And so they can't even start to prepare because it, it's not been determined. July 21st is not a firm date. Um, and, and so you, you can't start preparing uh, productions and, and developing sets and, and costumes and, and the rehearsing and, and all of that. I mean, it takes months of planning very often with auditions and, and getting people to come in and, and participate. We tend to lose track, too, of how many people actually rely on this industry for their employment. Yes, because uh, the tourism is one of those industries that just has tentacles into so many other areas. And, I mean, we're talking theater, uh, right and and mm-hmm. it's not just uh, the Mervis theaters in in Toronto. Take a look at uh, Niagara on the Lake, the yep. Shaw Festival. Take a look at Stratford. They are heavily heavily dependent on the U.S. market uh, that will come in for you know several days, not just one play because they make the most of the trip, and so they'll do two or three plays plus dinner plus hotel plus everything, and. It's, it's all the, the stores, all the, the businesses for the theater. It's, you know, the seamstress that depends on tourism. And yet, but if you ask her, uh, you know, what job do you do? She isn't going to say, I'm in tourism. She's going to say, I'm a seamstress. Mm-hmm. 
And we know that uh, both the Shaw Festival and Stratford are putting on some productions this year, but they're going to be outdoors, first of all. And uh, it's a scaled-down version. I, clearly, it has to be because of what's going on in, in, yeah. in the border and, and with that situation. So uh, the numbers are not going to be where they should be. That's, that's a, a given, I would think. Yes, yes, and which is why, I mean, it really is sad to see, uh, but Destination Canada does not expect us to truly recover until probably 2026. Which is rather daunting for the people in the hospitality industry. Uh, how, how do they hang on until then? I mean, there, always, there are going to be some businesses and, and there will be some productions and we can start doing some of that stuff and people will start hopefully coming across the border, but certainly not in the numbers. So uh, yeah. do they just you know consider that they're, they're going to be washing and redding for the next couple of years? Well, and, and this is where government support is so crucial for this industry to help them survive literally because if a lot of the businesses have to shut their doors for good um, then there is less incentive to come to to canada as well or to ontario because it's all these ancillary experiences that are needed in order to create that fulsome tourism experience that people come for do you get the sense, though, Professor, that there's a certain reticence? People are a little nervous about doing this traveling and going to other areas simply because we've seen spikes in, in the virus before. And, yes, I've got my two shots, but, you know, the doctor said that, you know, that doesn't mean that I'm bulletproof. I mean, there's still a possibility. How do you, how do you, do you deal with that concern? Yeah, and, and Canadians' um, research has shown we are much more reluctant to travel uh, than, for instance, our neighbors to the south. Um, even though our vaccination rates uh, now uh, surpass, certainly for the one dose, uh, surpass the Americans, we are far more reluctant as a people. Um, and, and so we're cautious, we're, we're anxious, uh, and travel really is still hyper-local and, and maybe a little bit within uh, your immediate region, sort of largely day trips and, and outings into uh, nature areas and rural areas. Um, we haven't really even started the inter- intra-provincial, like truly intra-provincial or inter-provincial travel. Um, maybe now that we're moving into stage two, we'll see a bit more of that. But again, uh, Destination Canada tracks actually the searches and the booking uh, pattern, and they're just not seeing it. Well, even when we had Tim Hudak on the program uh, earlier this week, uh, and we talked about the recommendations he put forth to the government, uh, that the theme here is, is staycation. In other words, stay in Ontario. They're, they're not encouraging uh, that, that kind of travel that you're just referring to, and that's that's really a big part of the summer season, a big part of the tourism season. I understand that, you know, Explore Ontario is a wonderful idea and a wonderful concept, uh, but, uh, you know, we're looking for international support here, too, and we're looking for people that want to go to other areas. And basically, I guess the, the theme from what we're getting from the provincial government here is uh, don't wander too far from home this summer. Absolutely. And, and all of Canada is doing that. And practically every other nation in the world is appealing to uh, their, their own residents to stay at home. Uh, but at the same time, the, the vaccination and the fully vaccinated people are being solicited by every country that is allowing tourism in. Um, and, and we're being bombarded with, uh, you know, offers to travel internationally. 
Um, and now that uh, we're going to see the no longer the requirement for a quarantine upon returning, it is another concern of the industry that people will say, well, you know, I can travel, so I'd rather go somewhere else. Um, and, and that because everybody is targeting uh, people with, with both vaccinations. I got to ask you, though, because one of those controversial aspects to this whole conversation uh, is is the, the vaccine passport or COVID-19 certificate, whatever you want to call it. Yep. Uh, as you know, the European Union started this week yep. uh, the, the, to use this. There uh-huh. seems to be a real reticence in North America, both the Prime Minister and and President Biden south of the border, not crazy about the idea. But if, if everyone else is doing it globally, is it inevitable that we're going to have to adopt it too? I would say yes. Um, we have to do something and we'll call it something else uh, you know, just to be different, to, to not call it a passport. But yes, absolutely, because otherwise you're not going to be able to, to travel. And, and people want that security. They want to know that they are safe. And, and so, yes, we'll need something. Um, we are reluctant in North America because we're much more concerned about individual rights and, um, you know, interfering with a person's personal decision as to uh, whether they wish to vaccinate or not and heaven forbid we should mandate it but in europe um, it's much more collectivist it's much more about society as a whole and keeping their their whole community safe and so they don't hesitate to say you need this in order to participate in in these experiences well, and it might alleviate the situation you and I were talking about just a couple of minutes ago, but people that are apprehensive about traveling uh, to other areas, because, you know, what if what if there's a spike there? You know, what if I run into somebody at the hotel that hasn't been vaccinated? This this should reassure them to a certain extent. But certainly, that's why the EU is doing it. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and we see how things can keep turning, uh, you know, on a dime. I mean, Portugal was, was green for the UK, uh, meaning no quarantine, no other. And then from one day to the next, it changed to orange. And, and people are caught short because now you've traveled to this country and, you know, you're, you're suddenly caught up in uh, problems around quarantine, around having to have tests where it, it wasn't required. All of these things really make people anxious about traveling. And so that passport is supposed to reassure people and and give them the confidence back that they're safe when they travel. Well, this week the EU took Canada off their, uh, you know, you guys can't come in here list, uh, which mm-hmm. is the good news. The bad news is, is for you, if you want to go there, you, these, these are the rules, and, and you better have that discussion about vaccine passports. Uh, doctor, yes. thank you as always for this. Great to get your perspective on this. Have a, a great weekend. We'll talk again soon, I hope. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Thank Dr. You. Marion Joppe from the University of Guelph. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, yesterday, Canada Day, uh, we saw a number of different uh, displays of affection and introspection uh, because of uh, this news we've learned over the last little while about residential schools and unmarked graves and more being discovered seemingly every week. Uh, there's a recent survey that was done, poll conducted by the Canadian Race Relations Foundation, that has some rather interesting uh, observations in it. And uh, I think Ken Coates is probably going to capsulize it. Ken is a Canadian historian and uh, a McDonald-Laurier Institute senior fellow. Uh, and he says Canadians just don't seem to comprehend just how horrific these residential schools really were. 
most of these children, I know sort of part of the answer comes back is, hey, they died of tuberculosis, they died of influenza. It's absolutely true. But the reality is, is that oftentimes their parents did not know for months, if not for years, that their children had died and that they were not handled with respect. And there's many reasons to be upset about this. But the most important one is the fact that the Canadian society is still so slow in identifying its responsibilities for the way in which Indigenous people have been mistreated for so very long. We've heard stories like this, probably not as graphic and not in, in such great detail, uh, especially when it comes to numbers, uh, and it tends to get forgotten. Let's be honest about this. This is a survey that I just referenced of Canadian Race Relations Foundation and the Assembly of First Nations and Abacus data shows that the majority of Canadians actually believe governments are not doing enough to teach students about the legacy of the residential school system. So how do we deal with this? Uh, I want to bring our next guest into the conversation to get some perspective on this. Dr. Liam Midzang-Gobin is a uh, Sattler Scholar, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Brock University. Uh, professor, thank you for joining us. I'm glad you could be with us here today. Hi, Bill. Thanks so much for having me on. I, uh, I appreciate the invite. Well, I'm glad you could join us. This is such an interesting topic and such an important topic. I think we've seen some very earnest displays of, of compassion uh, and, and simply frustration uh, from a number of Canadians over the last couple of weeks, Professor, about uh, what we're finding out uh, almost on a daily basis now. How do you translate that into action? So I think it's, it's really tough. Um, the, the research that you pointed to, I think, does a really good job of highlighting some of the trends that we're seeing kind of broadly. Um, as, um, as time goes on and as settler Canadians and non-Indigenous Canadians um, really find out about the horrors of residential schools, we're seeing uh, not only a lot more compassion, but more interest in, in learning more. Um, but I think really, really importantly, we're starting to see a lot of push um, from you know, non-Indigenous Canadians to their governments and really saying, well, you've got to do something about this. I think um, the, the study that, that you, had, you had mentioned um, does a really good job of highlighting the ways that you know, non-Indigenous Canadians want government to do more about finding more grave sites. Um, I, I noted it came out or it was put into the field. The study was June 4th to 8th. And so that's before we found out, you know, that well over a thousand children um, and a thousand grave sites we've we've now found, and that was just kind of at the beginning of this. And so um, there's certainly that push uh, among non-Indigenous Canadians, among settlers, to to want to learn more and find more graves. Uh, what's really important, I think, to remember is that it isn't just that we need to uncover our history. That truth aspect is really, really important, and I think um, was really highlighted in even the Prime Minister's remarks yesterday. But when you talk about of how we move forward and uh, how we take some concrete action. I think it's not only an uncovering truth, but it's also making sure that the systems of today aren't, you know, recreating the same problems. And unfortunately, with our Indigenous child welfare system, um, that's exactly what we're doing. We actually have more children in care than at the height of the residential school system right now. Um, we're starting to see lives or we're, be, we're continuing to see lives um, be, be taken in by that system. And so it's, it's not only uncovering these truths and, and facing up to that really hard history, but making sure that we're not repeating it today as our governments are, are seemingly willing to do. A couple of numbers jump out at me here. Apparently 93% of the Canadians that were polled anyway are aware of the discovery of the remains, especially at the, the Kamloops site. Uh, about 60% of Canadians say they're following it closely. So there's an interest there, Professor, that probably wasn't there before. Uh, I, 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 the hope here from a number of people here is, is that that's going to continue. And as you said, public pressure can put pressure on governments to say, okay, we need to do more here. 
Yeah, no, I absolutely think so. These are certainly much larger numbers than we've seen in the past. There's also the Institute on Research for Research on Public Policy has a, uh, a project called the Confederation of Tomorrow, and they've done uh, a few studies similar to this one over the last few years. And the numbers on awareness are quite similar uh, to to what we saw out of the this study from the Canadian Foundation for Race Relations. Um, and what the the um, Confederation of Tomorrow data really shows us is that there's an increasing interest among non-Indigenous Canadians. And we can track that, especially over the last four years, um, and even note that there's uh, this jump in interest from uh, the time of the TRC. And that, that's from this one study that you had uh, you had been talking about. There's about a 7% um, greater, uh, not only interest, but awareness of, of the residential school system from the time in 2015 when the TRC uh, made its report. And so seeing those numbers increase over time is actually, I think, quite encouraging because it shows us that the media attention that came with the TRC um, really has been sustained. And the attention on the fact that only 10 out of the 94 calls have been substantively uh, completed um, that the TRC put out, I think as we start seeing, you know, we're six years out from it now, we'll, that time will only increase. And we're not actually seeing a large increase in the number of calls that have been dealt with by, by this government and the, and the previous government. And so it's, it's really important that that awareness stays. And I think that that is actually quite a, quite a hopeful number to, to see increasing. I know they talk about culpability here, and I know in the survey, there, for instance, they say 90% of respondents believe the federal government is liable uh, for the damage caused, and the Catholic Church is not too far behind at 81%. But I've I, I got to throw something else out here, Professor. I think we as Canadians have, a, uh, have some culpability in this as well. I mean, you mentioned the Truth and Reconciliation Committee, and the government made a big deal about that when you know Senator Sinclair came out with all these findings. But it we didn't pay that much attention to it. I mean, it was a two-day news story. Uh, I'm sure many of the Indigenous folks thought, okay, finally we're going to get some action, and it just hasn't happened. Uh, and, and basically, maybe because some of the stuff in that report uh, was contrary to what we'd been told. I think a lot of Canadians knew residential schools existed, but we were told that they were just there to educate the, 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 you know, these Aboriginal Indigenous children. And, well, that's, that's probably not a bad thing. We had no idea about what really went on there. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. And, you know, when you start seeing numbers like that, um, I think it is cause for quite a bit of introspection. Um, introspection for a lot of reasons, um, in part for, for our history, but also the way that we remain tied to um, some of these horrors today and our own relationship to them. And so um, I think you're absolutely right that uh, we as non-Indigenous Canadians need to really step up and, and start you know, taking a hard look at, at what we allow our government officials to do in our name and the kinds of choices that we allow them to make. Um, and that's where the increase in these numbers, I think, can be a really good thing. If more people are aware and more people are willing to, to push the government um, and say, like, hey, I'm not going to allow you to do this. Uh, I'm not going to elect people who uh, are going to be willing to make these kinds of choices. Um, to really, you know, it looks like we're going to an election sooner rather than later um, at this point. And so with awareness numbers like this, um, I think it gives us the possibility of really holding our leaders to account on things like well, water advisories, uh, on things like the Indigenous Child Welfare System today, on things like, you know, actually putting them, their money where their mouth is and, and putting money into finding um, more of these grave sites and actually supporting the communities who have taken the lead on, on doing this work. Um, but yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't give us a sort of free pass on, on not knowing. Um, at the same time, though, 
I think the increase in numbers shows that um, not only is the store stayed alive, but also that we're continuing to pay attention. And it's those longer term trends I think are really important. Um, the TRC in its final report highlighted that reconciliation isn't going to happen overnight. It's actually quite a bit more difficult than even the horrific and difficult truth finding. And so if we're going to build that shared future that the TRC envisioned together, it's going to take a lot of work and it's going to take a long time. And the steps towards that are as important as that kind of final place that we get to. And so I think what uh, an optimistic approach to these numbers is, is that even over the long term, we're starting to see that attention be sustained, and that gives us a platform to do that work. I think we have to have a look at ourselves in the mirror, too, when we look at this. And, and, and I know, you know, the, the phrases like genocide have been used in this, and there's certainly, according to the UN definition of genocide, there's, there's an argument to be made that that's exactly what this was. But, but there are racist overtones and undertones to this at the same time. I mean, you know, we, we look at this and, and the indifference that we showed. I mean, you know, a number of people in the Aboriginal community were telling us about this, and we, we didn't believe it to be true or didn't pay that much attention. Not, not unlike the, the murdered and missing Indigenous woman, the from, women committee that was finally formed but for years elected officials say this is not a cultural issue it's just a crime issue uh and it certainly was a cultural issue but we just we seem to not, not want to focus on things like that because they're they're rather uncomfortable truths yeah i think that's absolutely right um and i think a lot of that gets reflected in the um kind of discussion that we've had around canada day and celebrations of the country um one of the things that, that i at least kept hearing um was that it was really important for us to have a day to celebrate all the good things about our country. But one of the things that we also really need to remember is that this is our history. Um, and that that vision of the country as something to celebrate, and certainly um, the work that Canada has done as something to celebrate, goes hand in hand with this colonial project. And the, not only the colonial legacy, but the kinds of impacts that it continues to have and the colonial actions that we continue to take. Um, I would completely agree. This is very much tied to missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. Um, the inquiry report that, that you had mentioned is really explicit about the fact that this system continues to constitute genocide. Um, the TRC report itself said that the residential school system was co uh, constituted cultural genocide. And so um, I'll, I'll note that 69% of 18 to 29 year olds in, in the survey, you know, actually sees the IRS, the Indian residential school system as a gen as an instrument of genocide is the way that it's framed. And so um, there is absolutely this kind of racial and um, genocidal intention behind the schools, but we also need to make sure that that doesn't carry over and we don't allow it to carry over into the, policies that our government continues to put in place today and we've got pressure on governments you mentioned about the mixed you know the boiled water advisors i think there are like 40 indigenous communities right now that are still under those advisories and have been for years uh and, and as one spokesperson said the other day for god's sakes they know how to build a water pipe and put it up there why aren't they just doing that this is not rocket science to fix these issues but there doesn't seem to be the will by government to do it and i guess that's our job really to to make sure that it, it does become part of their agenda it is our job, I think, to hold them to account, certainly, but I don't know that we can only put it on individuals. Um, and I'm not, I'm not saying that that's what you're doing, but I think Justin Trudeau came into office 
talking a really, really big game about reconciliation. He has consistently um, made it a core feature, a really, really central part of his speeches and his kind of image as a politician. But you're right, we continue to see these long-term boil water advisories. We continue to see uh, rates of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls far too high into genocidal territory. Um, we continue to see him not fund supports for, um, for those seeking their, their relatives um, in these unmarked graves. And quite frankly, we continue to see him and his government take indigenous children to court in order to minimize the amount of money they have to pay out and the amount of money that they have to put into um, the indigenous child and welfare system today. And so I, I think it is an individual level issue where we need to start holding our leaders to account. But at some point, the leaders actually have to do what they say they're going to do and don't get to um, ride on this rhetoric of reconciliation if they're not actually willing to do the work and actually are continuing to contribute to the harm. Well, and that's, again, I'm, I'm probably sounding awfully cynical, but I guess I'm frustrated like a lot of other Canadians are. Uh, politicians, not just the, this prime minister, but past prime ministers and, and ministers in charge of this portfolio, they cling to that, you know, the, the, these phrases, you know, the truth and reconciliation, this is what we're all about. Well, we want actions, not words. And, and that's, I guess, the frustration that a lot of people are feeling right now. Let's show it. Where's the game plan? Where's the action plan to try to incorporate some of these things? I, I thought that... that and now I think a lot of people, to your point, Professor, are starting to go back and say, what was in that report, by the way? Because they didn't pay much attention to it six years ago. And maybe they should start reading it because the the, the framework there and the game plan is, is right there. It's laid out. Yeah, it's, it's really clear. And I have to say, for, for anybody listening who, who wants to go back to the report but is maybe concerned that they won't understand it, um, I took some time yesterday to read back through the, the TRC report and to read some of the uh, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Inquiry Report. And these are beautifully and really easy to read documents. Um, easy to read in the sense of, uh, you know, you, they're, they're written at a very, very reasonable uh, reading level and, and they're not meant to be confusing at all. Um, they're, it's difficult content and, and it's content that you'll have to sit with. But I, I think maybe that's a good thing for a lot of us who haven't had to feel the, the effects of these policies firsthand. Well, and again, I go back to the phrase I used a couple of minutes ago, but uncomfortable truths. And it's it's not fun reading, and it and it it's going to evoke a number of emotions when you start reading some of the things that that are included in there. But you know, go back to that truth and reconciliation. As so many leaders have mentioned over the last couple of weeks, you can't have reconciliation until we have truth, and we're we're just getting we're scratching the surface, really. Yeah, absolutely, and that's one of the things that um, we see in some of the survey results as well, where. You know, 84% of Canadians in, in the survey said that they're expecting that we'll find more grave sites. And that's 90, and that's, you know, 84% of, of all Canadians. 90%, uh, 99% of Indigenous respondents called it, quote, inevitable. Like, th this is going to continue happening. And it's going to continue happening because it's something that we've really tried to ignore for, for all of these years. And, um, it's going to be difficult. And quite frankly, I think you're right. It should be difficult. It should be uncomfortable because this is part of our, our history, part of our legacy. But in the way that we are treating Indigenous children and Indigenous governments today, it's part of what we're continuing to do today. And so if we're uncomfortable with this having been done in our name or by our country, then it's time that we start stepping up and uh, really following through on that 
and making sure that it's not going to continue today. When I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago, I actually took a line from Bob Dylan's classic song, Blowing in the Wind. Uh, the, the one that jumped out at me in relation to this was, how many times can a man turn his head and pretend that he just doesn't see? We've been doing too much of that, and, and it's about time that we woke up to that reality. Absolutely, and that's a lot of the work that these inquiries and, and the TRC itself did. Um, you know, It goes back to the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples in 1996 with their final report. All of the evidence is there. Um, and that's not to say we shouldn't do more inquiries or we shouldn't find more information. Certainly, I would be out of a job in some respects if, if there wasn't anything else to find. But that is to say that we know what's happened. Um, we've, we've heard the stories. It was an incredible feat of courage for a lot of survivors, both of the residential school system, but also of the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls epidemic. It's an incredible feat of courage for people to come forward and tell their stories and talk about what happened to them. And I think if we're not willing to actually follow through on that, that does a disservice to the strength that, that they really showed us. Professor, real pleasure having you on the program to offer your insight into this, and uh, we want to keep the conversation going. Uh, hopefully we can talk again down the road. Thanks so much for this today. Thanks, Bill. I'd love to come back anytime. Take care. Dr. Liam Midzian-Gobin, of course, from Brock University, and uh, talking about truth and reconciliation and, uh, you know, like I say, actions instead of words. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.